morning. It's good to be back with you again. I see friends, some of very long standing. I'm especially glad that I can be here this morning with uh, my family and our friends in Chorus Parvis, that we could share in our worship together with you. And I must say, this is only the second time I've been here uh, since you've uh, begun this uh, redecoration. I, I really love what you've done with the place. Looks great. Please turn to the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. While you're turning there, I bring you greetings in Christ from the session and congregation at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harleysville. And if you have any family or friends up there, please recommend, tell them to come drop by and pay us a visit. And also from the faculty and students at the Templeton Honors College at Eastern University just across the river, I'd say ditto. Anybody looking for a school, if you just want to come visit a class, sit in, we're happy to have visitors. A reading from the Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Now, after, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent, to them, sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise be to thee, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the promise of your Holy Spirit, which was fulfilled on Pentecost, and ask that he, through the words of your word, would lead us into all truth. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, this story is one of those that are so familiar that we have trouble reading them. In this case, we hear the words wise men, or gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and our brains just switch onto automatic pilot. We know this so well we can almost not pay attention to it. In fact, we can hardly pay attention to what we read. Our hearts say something like this, yeah, 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 get on with it, get to the end. And our mind's ear is actually listening to we three kings. We know what the gifts mean, and the result is that Matthew's story is kind of dumb. It doesn't even speak to us. Dumb in the sense of unable to speak. 
So I'd like to think about this story with you and make a few suggestions that will, I hope, help us hear it, and then suggest a few trains of thought that it's prompted in my own mind. I should also note that the Massacre of the Innocents, as it's called, Rachel's Lament, the flight to and return from Egypt are their own part of the story, and perhaps we'll be able to address that some other time. Although nearly every creche contains an ox and a donkey, some shepherds and usually a cute sheep, magi of some sort, and their gifts, and usually a camel in the background, as well as Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, and a couple of angels hovering around somewhere. Um, by the time the Magi arrived, enough time had passed that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus had moved into a house. And Jesus is now called a child, not an infant. Two different words. He's called an infant in Luke 2 when the shepherds visit, but here he's called a child. He's old enough actually to begin to be taught. Caesar Augustus, who had ordered the census that brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, was still emperor in Rome. But the reign of Herod the Great, king of the Jews, was just about over. He's a very old man, he, and he certainly dies within no more than two years of the events that we read about in this story. So in those days, a caravan arrived in Jerusalem. This wasn't unusual. Caravans were always in coming, coming and going because Jerusalem was a major stopover for travelers going to and from Egypt and the regions along both sides of the Red Sea all the way down into what we call Yemen at the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula. This particular caravan had come out of the east, going along the Euphrates River, then come down south through Syria into Judea. They were from Parthia, which stretched in modern terms, from eastern Turkey all the way into western India. Encompassed Turkey, Iraq, Kurdistan, Afghanistan, Iran, Pakistan, and a big chunk of western India. The Parthian Empire was as big as Rome and just as powerful, in fact, had defeated Rome, inflicted the worst defeats Rome had ever suffered. So, here they come. Their arrival at Jerusalem would have caused no comment. I mean, it's just another caravan. Because Herod was a rich king. He spent his money freely. He on building projects and a pretty lavish lifestyle. He liked to build swimming pools wherever he built a palace, and he had several palaces scattered around the country. The markets of Jerusalem would have been a destination of choice. Merchants would have come from far and near to sell their merchandise there. Nor would anybody in Jerusalem have been surprised that it included servants and armed guards, for they'd obviously come a long way along dangerous roads. They would, in fact, have been traveling for at least a month, think of that, a month, stopping at caravanseries or at oases to pitch their tents while they traveled across the Iraqi desert. Nor would the presence of magi, and how many were not told, could have been three, could have been two dozen, we have no idea, have made this caravan stand out. The Magi were Zoroastrian priests. They were famous for their piety and for their good works and for their astronomical and astrological knowledge of the skies. Zoroastrianism was Parthia's state religion. Its priests traveled all over the ancient world seeking 
good-seeking converts to their religion, to Ahura Mazda, their god. The rabbis despised them as pagans and falsely called them magicians. Zoroastrians actually um, forbade magic of any kind. They were perhaps what we might consider religiously-minded scientists. Pagans, but religiously-minded. So there's no cause for comment in any of this, just another group of merchants looking to buy or sell or both, but at any rate, they're going to make a profit out of the citizens of Jerusalem. This caravan was a bit different, however. This group of magi were looking for someone. They're looking for someone, a recently born king of the Jews, because they wanted to pay their respects to him and offer him gifts. So when word reached Herod that a group of Parthian magi we're looking for a newborn king of the Jews. Herod knew it wasn't any of his kids, they were too old. And that his birth had been foretold by the stars, he and the whole city of Jerusalem went into a panic. There are good reasons for this. Now that they look a little more closely, these magis seem more like an official delegation than a group of proselytizers. Now, Rome and Parthia were officially at peace, but actually they'd been engaged in an ongoing cold war over the kingdom of Armenia for the last 20 years. When the Parthians had overrun Palestine, as they had just a generation earlier, many of the Jews had welcomed them as deliverers from Rome. And many Jews would be glad to be free from Rome again. Herod himself had only become king because the Senate said, if you can get rid of the Parthians, then you can become king. So he, his last contact with Parthia was war, fighting against them. And the problem with saying, where is he born to be king of the Jews, is that client kings, Herod is appointed by the Senate, he didn't inherit his role, client kings had to be vetted and approved by the Roman government. You weren't just born to, and become king because you were born the son of a king. You had to get the stamp of approval. And they would have known, the Jews would have known Balaam's prophecy, that a star shall come from Judah, and a scepter shall arise out of Israel. The rabbis all agreed that the prophecies of Daniel, chapter 9, meant that this was the time when Messiah should come. He should show up any time now. You can read this in the Talmud. They all knew that this was, this was the right time. Which is why Herod interprets their question about a king as a question about Messiah. And Messiahs made Rome very nervous because Messiahs lead revolts. And if the Roman Senate, which had appointed Herod king, became nervous, Rome might well intervene for your own good, of course. You know that famous statement, I'm from Rome and I'm here to help you. His kingdom was a border kingdom. It's a border state between the Roman Empire on the east, the Par I mean on the west, the Parthians to the east. And his job was to maintain the border of the empire and to keep the peace. Herod couldn't allow a Jewish revolt, and especially not one that was supported by the Parthians and led by a Messiah. On the other hand, if this was an official delegation of any kind, refusing to receive them could offend the Parthians and lead to a diplomatic incident, which wouldn't make Rome happy. But on the other hand, that's the third hand now, on another hand, receiving them might encourage his many political enemies 
to tell Rome that Herod was making a treaty with Parthia, which was against the rules of his kingship. So Herod is in a real political pickle. Now when we add to this Herod's well-known paranoia, he'd already killed at least three of his sons or had them put to death. He had his wife, Mariamne the first, put to death. And then when her mother said, well, if, if my daughter's dead, that makes me queen, he had her put to death. He also had recently, or within around this time, killed about 300 Jewish leaders, all because he suspected these people, his sons, his wife, his mother-in-law, suspected them of plotting to overthrow him. So, no wonder all Jerusalem is terrified. No one wants another war, and no one wants to give Herod an excuse for another round of executions. So, Herod did what he's really good at. He figured out how to get rid of a potential rival by dividing and conquering. First, he calls in the Jewish religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes, experts in scripture, and asks them where the Messiah would be born. Now, the Talmud records debate between the rabbis about who the Messiah would be and exactly what he would do. But they all agreed on two things, at least. He would be David's descendant from Psalm 110 and Psalm 2, and he would come from Bethlehem, David's hometown, as Micah prophesied. So Herod then, from them, got one part of his answer. He knows where to look. Next, he met secretly with the Magi. The King James uses the word privily, which is really a great word for this kind of a meeting. The secret meet, I mean, it's a meeting, so he avoids offending the Parthians. He at least receives them as king. But it's a secret meeting because he doesn't want his political enemies to get wind of this. And he meets with them to find out when they first saw the star. Well, they give him a date sometime in the previous year and a half or so. But now, even though, even though he had everything he needed to know, the place and an approximate age, he couldn't really act openly. He can't just go charging down there with a Roman cohort and slaughter the kid because the Jews hated him. They hated Herod. And if he did anything like that that was seen as, as oppressive, again, he could well spark a revolt, and a revolt would bring Roman intervention. We're from Rome, we're here to help you, with a thousand men, you know, with swords. So he told the Magi what the religious leaders had told him, Bethlehem, is the place you're looking for, yep. said that he supported their mission, and sent them to find the child and then report back to him what they discovered. Then he added that I too want to come and kneel before him. But he must have offered some excuse. I mean, why not just go along with them at the time? Maybe, you know, he had a hangnail or something. But he didn't go. Perhaps, though, he suspected he, he was planning, really, to wait until they got out of the country. Then he could send an assassin down, you know, just a surgical strike, slip into Bethlehem, kill the kid, get back to Jerusalem. Nobody would know. That would be kind of Herod's way of doing things. His favorite son, he had drowned in his favorite swimming pool in Jericho because he thought he would plot against him. So, you know, killing an unknown child wouldn't be a big deal. Matthew doesn't tell us what the Magi thought of all this. He merely says that after listening to the king, they left, they went. Bethlehem is a village. It's only about four or five miles south of Jerusalem. So 
a few hours walk away. But the Magi must have left Jerusalem after dark because they could see the star. So Herod couldn't have expected an answer that night, but he's certainly expecting one in the morning, probably before lunch. Now, the star confirmed Bethlehem as the new king's location and guided the Magi, perhaps to their surprise, to a house where they honored, and we could translate it, they did obeisance, they worshipped, they knelt before, before him. Something that they've been looking forward to doing for months. This is the culmination. This is what they set out to do months ago when they lived way back in the east. And they gave him their gifts. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. And again, you know, we see the little statues in the creche and they're carrying a little, looks like a perfume bottle, right? You know, or something like that. Um, but we have to remember that when Mary broke her bottle of spikenard and anointed Jesus' feet, the complaint that Judas gave was <laughs> that that was worth a year's salary. One bottle. And it's kind of hard to believe that they would have traveled a thousand or so miles to bring one bottle of myrrh and one container of frankincense and a few gold coins. Almost makes us wonder if Joseph had to go out and get another donkey so that they could carry everything down to Egypt when they fled. Then after worshiping the child, this baby Jesus, this young Jesus, they went to sleep. But they had a troubling dream that warned them not to return to Herod. They must have left early the next morning. They've got to get out of there before Herod figures out what's going on. And they either went, they could go straight east, go across the top of the Dead Sea, get into the region of Decapolis, then up into Perea, and then they'd be out of Herod's reach. Or they could go south, down around the Dead Sea, the opposite direction from Jerusalem. We don't know how they went. What we do know is that they returned to their own land by another route. And we all know the rest of the story, how Joseph was warned in a dream almost certainly the same night, got up early in the morning, set out for Egypt so that he, Mary, and Jesus were out of reach before Herod could figure out that he'd been tricked, that the Magi weren't coming back, before he could command the death of all the children in Bethlehem. Now, on a purely human level, if we're just reading this as a story, it really illustrates something. It really illustrates the difference between prudence or wisdom on one hand and folly on the other. Joseph Pieper, the Christian philosopher, says that prudence is the ability to see things as they really are and to act accordingly. He says it better than that. Let me read what he says. The precondition for every ethical decision is the perception and examination of reality. And yet, this perception makes up only the first half of prudence. The other half consists in translating our knowledge of reality into decision and action. We're thus able to state, prudence is the art of making the right decision based on the corresponding reality, no matter whether justice, courage, or temperance is at stake. And when he talks about reality, people as a Christian theologian, Christian philosopher, he certainly means including God and all the powers of heaven. The Magi saw something unusual in the night sky. They interpreted it correctly. 
by the grace of God. And they responded at enormous expense of money, of time, of energy, at the risk of their lives. They responded with worship, adoration, and gifts. Herod accepted their testimony. He believed them. And he accepted the testimony of scripture. He believed the chief priests and the scribes. But he chose to interpret both of those by leaning on his own understanding. So he responded with rebellion and murder. The religious leaders responded by answering the question. And as far as we know, that's all they did. And there you have the human condition, if you want. Faith, rebellion, or a non-committal tip of the hat, a nod of the head. And we can ask ourselves, which typifies our response to what we read in Scripture? To the advice and counsel that we get from others? To what we see in the created order? How, how do we respond? And then I'd like to suggest a few more thoughts, actually five, but they're short, don't worry. First one is this. Remember these three words. Resistance is futile. Herod's plan was foolproof. It was brilliant. It's right out of Mission Impossible. Divide and conquer by getting one piece of information from the religious leaders, another from the magi, sucker the magi into doing your spying for you, then slip in, kill the kids, slip out, nobody's the wiser, you got it done. One surgical trip over. But he forgot one thing, God. God warned the magi in a dream not to go back to Herod in order to protect Jesus, his anointed. God warned Joseph in a dream in order to protect all three of them, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, from Herod's assassins. Just as he had already sent an angel to Joseph telling him to marry his betrothed wife, even though Mary was pregnant out of wedlock. The plans of God, you see, are, are never thwarted. Never thwarted. You hear the word never. He alone knows the end from the beginning. He alone delights to do and bring about all his holy will. No one, nothing, nothing can stand against him. And the plan and design of God, which he is even now bringing to fruition, is the redemption and renewal of all things in Christ so that every knee will bow, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this, most assuredly, will come to pass. And resistance is futile. Secondly, God is gracious beyond our comprehension. Think of this. He gave the sign of the star to false prophets to the pagan priests of a false religion. And then he gave them the ability to understand it so that they might worship his Messiah, his Christ, his son, 
Just as the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah, the Magi responded the same. They changed their lives. You think it's a simple thing to get together a caravan to cross a thousand miles of desert and mountains. We think it's hard to move from one apartment to another with a professional company to do all the packing and carrying. They changed their lives in the hope of finding the one born to be king of the Jews. Out of his own grace, out of his own goodness, God chose to reveal himself to these men and they responded by obeying the summons that was implicit in the revelation. They set out at great cost on a journey whose danger, I, I don't even know how to describe it so that we can, I don't understand it myself. Bearing valuable gifts with which to honor this newborn king. But there's more than that. You, it took me reading this story, like this is the fourth reworking of this sermon, my wife will tell you, over the last week. He reveals three different things to the Magi by three different means. First, he uses the created order, the star, to reveal that a king's been born to the Jews. Then, he reveals where that king is to be found through his written word, the prophecy of Micah. Then, he tells them not to go back to Herod in a dream. Even Solomon only talked to God twice. And these are pagan priests, false prophets, false teachers. And then God lets them get back to their own country. And you got to believe that their kids, their parents, their neighbors, everybody they know says, where have you been? What did you find? What happened? And they have the opportunity to testify to what God has done to people who otherwise could never have heard. grace of God, you see, goes far beyond our ability to understand and far beyond the most generous any of us can imagine being. And here we see the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy given when Jesus was eight days old in the temple and Simeon holds him in his arms. He says, now, Lord, de deliver let your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of his people Israel. And it's the beginning of the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that we read this morning for our Old Testament lesson. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawning. The wealth of the nations will come to you. They will bring gold and frankincense. The birth of Christ fulfills the word of God and reveals the grace of God to all. Third, this is a hard one. I don't actually like it. The 
But that same grace is enormously patient and persistent. Herod had all the information that he needed. He knew that Messiah had been born. He had the testimony of the star. He knew when he'd been born, star again. He knew where he was, Bethlehem, scripture. God offered Herod, who was a wicked king, a great architect, a brilliant ruler, but a wicked man. God offered Herod the opportunity to repent, to go with the Magi, to kneel, to worship, to submit his life to Christ. And even though Herod rejected this offer, and even though we remember him primarily for the murder of the children of Bethlehem, after all, no one names their son Herod, do they? That's our dog, maybe. This was nonetheless a genuine offer from a good and gracious God who is not willing, not willing that any perish but that all come to repentance. No one, you see, no one is ever, ever beyond the offer of redemption and salvation and forgiveness and new life. It's true, God's patience will end someday, it's true. But that day is not yet. And as the author of Hebrews says, Brothers, you need to encourage each other day by day, as long as it is called today, lest any of you be hardened by the lies and deceit of sin. And so we live under God in hope. Fourth thing. Knowledge is not enough. The chief priests and the scribes knew the scripture. In fact, they quoted Micah. And I'm going to bet that there are some people here, <laughs> sorry, not looking at anybody in particular, who couldn't find Micah without a table of contents. They just quoted Micah. In fact, you know, the rabbis didn't have, they didn't have references like we do. They couldn't say um, Deuteronomy 6.4. You know how they referred to scripture verses? They just quote the first three words and everybody knew what the passage was. That's how you referred to scripture. But notice their knowledge didn't move them to do anything. As far as we know, again, as far as we know. Soren Kierkegaard says, what an atrocious contradiction that the scribes should have the knowledge and yet remain still. Their knowledge did them no good. They're like fools who build houses on sand only to see them collapse when it rains. Who hear Jesus' words but don't obey them. You and I can memorize biblical passages. We can memorize whole books. We can memorize all of the Westminster standards. Wouldn't that be great? Maybe you have. But if that hasn't affected our lives by informing our choices, by shaping how we live day by day, then it's worthless. And in fact, it's even dangerous 
as Jesus' parable implies, because we've chosen to trust something that cannot and will not shelter us in itself. If it doesn't, if it doesn't direct the course of our lives, it's worthless. Finally, a word about the star. Why a star? Very early in the church's history, during the reign of Emperor Trajan, Trajan, about a actually about just a little more than a century after these events, Ignatius, who was the bishop of the city of Antioch, was condemned to be executed in Rome because he was a Christian. He wouldn't he wouldn't give up his testimony. As the centurions uh, took him from Antioch, from Asia Minor, to Rome, he would meet with the, the church in each city as, he went, as they went through, that the Christians would come to meet him. And then as he passed by, he'd write back to some of the churches that he'd visited, and some of those letters have been collected, and we have them, they're part of the Apostolic Fathers. Toward the end of the one called Ignatius to the Ephesians, he asked how three mysteries, Mary's virginity, Mary's virgin birth, right, that is Christ's virgin birth, and the Lord's death, which should be shouted. This is great news, yes? But which God accomplished silently, without shouting. How those three mysteries could be hidden from the ruler of this world, from Satan lest he thwart the plan of God, right? He asks, and how then were they revealed to the ages? And he answers his question in what has come to be called the star hymn of Ignatius. I'm going to read it. A star shone in heaven brighter than all the stars, and its light was indescribable, and its newness caused amazement. The rest of the stars, with the sun and the moon, became a chorus to that star. Its very light surpassed all things. There was also anxiety. Whence this newness that was so unlike them? By this, all sorcery was destroyed, and every evil bond blotted out. Ignorance was cut off, the old kingdom was destroyed because God revealed himself as human unto the newness of everlasting life. And all things received the beginning for which they'd been prepared by God. Hence, all things were disturbed because the destruction of death was planned. And this is what we celebrate. Not the birth of a baby, although that's really happy and sweet. Not even angels, shepherds, magi, or anything else. Sheep, camels. But we celebrate this birth because by the life of the Son of God and by his death and resurrection and ascension, God has destroyed the kingdom of death and opened for the whole world the path that leads to life. Life more abundant now and in the world to come, the life that we were created to live. 
And so to this little house in Bethlehem, the Magi came, they saw, they worshipped. Just as we are bid come and worship this same Jesus today and into eternity. Amen. Let us pray. O God, who by the leading of a star didst manifest thy only begotten Son to the Gentiles, mercifully grant that we, who know thee now by faith, may after this life have the fruition of thy glorious Godhead through the same thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.